This week, an ancient human genome drops clues about Native American ancestry. I had never in my wildest dreams expected that you would have this kind of mixture in the genome between West Eurasians and Native Americans. And doing real science at school. Before doing the project we thought you know it would all be books and lab work and but we realised that it's more than just books and lab work. You have to go out and talk to people, you in, um, network with other scientists, there's so much that you do. Plus, what will it take to get supermaterial graphene from the lab bench to the factory floor? This is The Nature Podcast for November the 21st, 2013. I'm Thea Cunningham. And I'm Kerry Smith. Who were the first Americans? Evidence from human remains is sparse, and very little about the origin of Native Americans is certain. To address the question this week, we actually need to start somewhere else, somewhere pretty isolated, Siberia. In the part of Russia directly above Mongolia, the average temperature about now, mid-November, is minus 25. But it's clear that even tens of thousands of years ago, this didn't put off human residents. Near a giant inland lake at a well-known site called Maltar, archaeologists have over the past few decades found human bones and artefacts. They're over 20,000 years old. Now a team led by Eske Villeslev, an ancient DNA specialist at the University of Copenhagen in Denmark, has taken another look at an arm bone and managed to extract some DNA. What they found told them not only about this Siberian population, but also about the journeys its genes took and the places they ended up. I spoke to Eske about their findings. Some people have argued that the first people entering the Americas is around 12,000 years ago. But then there has been increasing evidence suggesting that people might actually have occupied the Americas earlier than that, maybe something like 14, even 16,000 years ago. And how do people suppose that the land was populated? Who were the first Americans genetically? The traditional view is that it's East Asians crossing the Bering Land Bridge, so to speak, entering the Americas and spreading through the continent. Then other people have argued, you know, that it's actually Western Europeans, you know, who have crossed the Atlantic into the Americas. And then finally, there has been also people arguing that it's basically Melanesians that cross into South America and then spread northwards. And why is it so uncertain how people might have got there? I mean, it's because we know so little about the early skeletons and it's also because there's, in the archaeological record, some controversies. We all know that when Europeans came to America, it was populated by Native Americans. But when you go back in the record, some people that study cranial morphology argue that the cranial morphology seems to be different from East Asians that otherwise should have been the ancestors of Native Americans and looks more like Europeans, for example. The other problem is that even among Native Americans, today you find a mitochondrial haplogroup called haplogroup X, which is actually very similar to mitochondrial haplogroups or mitochondrial sequences from, for example, Europeans. And that has kind of generated some of these ideas about people actually crossing from other sites than the Bering Strait in order to get, you know, Europeans or something European-alike into the Americas. Now, your team has been hoping to shed some light on this question by analysing some genomic information Mm -hmm. from an extraordinarily old individual. Mm -hmm. Tell me about the individual from Malta. Mm. So the Malta individual is 24,000 years old. So we genome sequenced it, and this makes it actually the oldest 
modern human genome to date. It's a remarkable site very near Lake Baikal in the kind of eastern part of central Siberia on the border to Mongolia. And with these remains of a young kid was all kind of cultural items. One of these cultural items were um, a Venus figurine. And these Venus figurines, they actually found, uh, you know, all the way westwards from this area as well, you know, into Europe. And uh, when we then sequenced this genome, something very strange appeared, namely that this individual genome seems to be consisting of Western Eurasians on one side and Native Americans on another side. I mean, so parts of the genome you find today in Western Eurasians, other parts of the genome you find today in Native Americans, which is unique to Native Americans. But we found no evidence of East Asian. And then we started modeling this and comparing it, you know, to genomic data from across the world. And it became evident that there's actually been a gene flow from this Maltar population, so to speak, into those East Asians that are the ancestors of Native Americans. So it's basically Native Americans are composed of the meeting, you can say, of two populations, a group of East Asians and these Maltar, Western Eurasians. And where exactly would that have happened on their journey. Well, They're in Siberia, East Asians are in East yeah, Asia. Yeah. Did they get to the Americas first mm. and then mix or what we, was going on? We actually, we do not know the, the answer to that question yet. I mean, it could have happened in the old world, somewhere in Siberia, obviously, but in principle, it could also have happened in the new world. So uh, the only way to, uh, I would say, address, or the most direct way at least to address this question would actually be to genome sequence some of the early skeletons from the Americas. Because if that turns out to already have the admixture of the East Asian and the Maltar, we know, well, it happened before then, right? This is an individual from the depths of Siberia. Mm -hmm. I mean, were you expecting conclusions about Native American population history when you started doing this? When we started, I hoped that it would have some kind of relation to Native Americans, but I had never in my wildest dreams expected that you would have this kind of mixture in the genome between Western Eurasians and Native Americans. I mean, it was like, wow, what is this? These bones weren't found alone. You mentioned that there have been these little Venus sculptures which are present all over Europe um, mm. with human remains. What does it tell you about the culture that these people might have taken with them? It's definitely a very advanced culture. I mean, it's very detailed. So this is intriguing. And it's also, of course, interesting to think about how is this Maltai individual related to the individuals of the same time carrying these Venus figurines in Europe, for example. You, you must spend your free time, or even your work time, wondering what life was like for a population of humans that existed in the coldest period recently known to man. Mm. Oh yeah, it has been a period which was very cold, much colder than today, but also very dry. Probably be something more similar to what you see on the North American plains, you know, but just more severely cold, so to speak, <laughs> with a lot of mammoth and bison and stuff like that running around. Mm, delicious. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that was S.K. Villaslev at the University of Copenhagen. Still to come in the research highlights, the evolution of Little Red Riding Hood and sea slugs that stab their partners in the head during sex. Yes, you heard that right. But before that, Charlotte investigates how graphene researchers will spend a big chunk of cash from Europe's purse. 
Earlier this year, the European Commission awarded half a billion euros each to two research projects, one on the human brain and the other on graphene, an extraordinary material that promises a lot, but so far has found few practical uses. Reporter Mark Peplow has been talking to researchers to find out how they'll use the funding to harness graphene's unique properties. He's on the line now. Mark, remind us what graphene is and what its super qualities are. So graphene is the thinnest substance ever made. It's a single sheet of carbon atoms arranged in this honeycomb pattern of interlocking hexagons. If you stack billions and billions of sheets of graphene together, you would make graphite, the stuff in pencil lead. Now, if you take just one of those sheets, graphene, it's as stiff as diamond, hundreds of times stronger than steel, and yet it's quite flexible. Um, It's even stretchy. It conducts electricity faster than anything else at room temperature, and it converts light of any wavelength into a current. But so far, it's been difficult to take advantage of these amazing properties. Why is that so difficult? Well, all of these properties exist when graphene is existing as this monolayer, just a single atomic sheet. And that's very, very hard to make, or at least it is in in large quantities. It was first isolated back in 2004 by Andrei Geim and Konstantin Novoselov at the University of Manchester. And the way that they did it was just to get some sticky tape, touch it onto graphite and peel off a layer or so. So the problem is that making graphene that way, ultimately, if you were trying to do it for sale, and and a few companies are, one of these micrometer-sized flakes can cost more than $1,000. If you want to make it in bulk, generally the stuff that you make is of much lower quality than those flakes. And that means that all those amazing properties that you had in the lab working with these tiny flakes, they just evaporate. So one of the challenges for the next few years then is scaling up production. Yeah, that's a big challenge and that's something that the European graphene flagship is going to try and tackle. At the moment, probably the best way to make graphene is chemical vapour deposition, which basically you take methane, which has got carbon atoms in it, and you decompose it at very, very high temperature and it sort of sticks to a surface, joins together to make graphene and then you peel that off. Now, at the moment, that's still pretty expensive. But actually, another of the problems is that once you've made the graphene, it's incredibly easy to tear it and rip it. So it's an absolute pain to handle. So it's very difficult to churn out thousands of uh, you know, iPhones using a graphene screen. You need consistency and reproducibility, and that's why it needs to be mechanised. What are then the most promising applications for graphene? You mentioned just there iPhone screens. That's certainly one that some people are promising we might see on the market next year. On the front of your mobile phone, you've got a touchscreen. It needs to be transparent, but it also needs to conduct electricity. The current material that's used for that, Indian tin oxide, is getting more expensive, and it's also quite brittle. Graphene is cheaper and stronger, and various Asian companies, including Samsung, have developed prototypes of this. Some promise that they will bring this to market next year. It may have to wait until graphene prices fall more, though, before we actually see this as a widespread consumer product. You mentioned that graphene is a very good conductor of electricity. Is there any chance it could replace silicon? 
initially when people started exploring graphene, they thought, yes, this could be a great replacement. Its electrons are so mobile, they move around like grease lightning. So the fact that they can whiz one way and then the other means that um, a transistor based on graphene could potentially operate at very, very high frequencies, much higher than silicon. The difficulty with graphene is once that current has started flowing, it's very hard to switch it off. So you have to sort of fiddle about with it. You have to dope it with other materials or cut it in special ways, into special shapes. But the trouble is that then slows its electrons down, so you lose some of those advantages. So I think most people in the field would say you wouldn't see anything rivaling silicon in a commercial sense before 2020. Is the EU funding going to help with um, these developments? depends who you talk to. A lot of people involved in the flagship, and there are hundreds and hundreds of scientists involved in, in 17 countries, they would all say, yes, this is going to help. And there's no doubt that they're going to do a lot of fundamental science, which is sort of specifically targeted to get graphene away from the lab bench and onto the factory floor. But other people point out that this sort of manufacturing revolutions don't spring from this sort of very large collaborative academic network. If you were to bet on one graphene technology, what would it be? I think there's been enough invested in graphene touchscreens that you will be able to buy devices containing graphene touchscreens in the very near future. I think further in the future, you, and by further in the future, you know, in the next decade, you are likely to see graphene in applications where you don't, where the consumer doesn't necessarily see it, but it's doing something very useful, potentially in photo detectors. Researchers might be using it in the lab to help make very, very short laser pulses to do uh, spectroscopy experiments. So it will slowly percolate into use, I think. That was Mark Peplow talking to Charlotte Stoddart. You can read Mark's feature at nature.com slash news. Now it's time for the research highlights read by Noah Baker. Biologists, what big trees you have. A team of anthropologists have borrowed a phylogenetic tree to trace the ancestry of the folktale Little Red Riding Hood. The UK-based team wanted to see how stories evolve and spread over culture and time. Phylogenetic trees are normally used to see evolution relationships between biological species. The researchers looked at nearly 60 variations of Little Red Riding Hood. They treated the different versions as if they were separate species, and the different plot elements as if they were genetic variations. African versions of the stories were more closely related to another widespread folktale, The Wolf and the Kids, whereas East Asian versions probably evolved by combining the two with local tales. Read more in PLOS One. Outside of horror movies, amorous encounters don't usually end with a stab in the face. But for sea slugs on Australia's Great Barrier Reef, sex literally does mess with the head. Researchers looked at the traumatic bedroom antics of 20 slugs called Cyphopteran. The hermaphroditic creatures have a two-pronged penis, a sperm-injecting bulb and a long needle-like prong. Just seconds after they insert the bulb into their partner, they stab the prong into the mate's forehead, injecting prostate fluid. The team suspect the slugs aim their fluid towards the neural ganglia, a central bunch of nerve cells, to influence how their partner behaves after sex. Find that paper in the Proceedings of the Royal Society B. 
Think back to your school days and you may remember dissecting frogs or watching sodium fizz about in a bowl of water. But what if, instead of cookbook experiments, you were doing novel research? A UK-based initiative called Authentic Biology has set out with precisely this goal, bringing real science into the school environment. Noah Baker reports. Blot, uh, this developed gel with the anti 3 e 98 antibody. You can clearly see that the antibody reacts with both... The Alice Colthurst presents the results of her latest site-directed mutagenesis. Just like any scientific conference you might say, only the presenters here are still at school. The man behind all of this is biology teacher Dave Colthurst from the Simon Langton School in Kent, UK, which also happens to be my old school. Colthurst's students are investigating the impact of phosphorylation on the structure of myelin basic protein, which is implicated in multiple sclerosis. For their teacher, there's a very personal motivation for the project. It started with my wife's diagnosis with MS some six years ago. Uh, my, in a former life, before I became a teacher, I was a research biochemist, and so I wondered if there was a possibility of combining my experience in research biochemistry with my teaching. So uh, I, I basically looked around to see if I could get funding to actually uh, deliver a research programme within the school. Um, as it happens, the only possible source of funding was the Wellcome Trust, and I was fortunate in my first application, I was successful and we got a People Award. Initially, the Wellcome were obviously quite nervous because they'd never heard of us before, and the concept of schools doing biochemical research was quite alien to anybody but um, it, it very quickly proved to be very successful um, they gave us another grant to continue the project and subsequently they asked us if we'd actually make it larger roll it out to a wider audience to show if our model that we developed at the Langton could actually be transported to other schools and so the authentic biology initiative was launched this is its second symposium featuring work from the five schools in the UK now involved each with a university partner when the axon loses its insulating layer, it takes much more ATP from... The hall is full of nervous energy as the students present their work. But how did they find the process of actually doing the research? I'm Nadia and I'm a year 13 at St Paul's Red Cross School and I live in Tower Hamlets. We're doing research into diabetes and whether if you have a certain type of FTO gene, you'd be more susceptible to getting diabetes. And we're researching specifically within the Bengali population because the population is huge in Tower Hamlets and because they are much more susceptible to the disease than any other ethnic um, minority. Before doing the project, we thought, you know, it would all be books and lab work. And, but we've realised that it's more than just books and lab work. You have to go out and talk to people, you in, um, network with other scientists. There's so much that you do. Working with local hospitals, they began gathering data. As is often the case with science, especially when dealing with sensitive clinical information, it hasn't always been easy. But Nadia wasn't put off. Even if our results are not what we expected, we've learnt something from the, our method or like when we first conducted the experiment, our DNA didn't digest properly. And that was really disappointing, but um, we knew that now we need to digest it overnight. So we can, it just kind of helps us to improve everything. It doesn't really get frustrating. It's quite satisfying, actually. Nadia has high hopes for her work and thinks other students should have the same opportunities. Something like this should be integrated in every school. It's a unique way of learning and it will help kids to concrete their understanding and make sure that they really get the work that they're learning about. With the help of the Business Institute at Queen Mary, we do look to publish our findings. So you hope to be a published scientist at 17 years old? Yeah, it's actually, <laughs> I never thought of it that way actually. Yeah, I really do hope to be a published scientist. Students from the Langton School are preparing to publish their first paper about their work on myelin basic protein. Mick Chute, a professor of molecular biology at the University of Kent, has supported their bid to submit their work to the journal PLOS One. In my capacity as a journal editor on, on PLOS One, I, was, I, I thought this would be an opportunity to try and open the scientific community's eyes to the fact that science is not just done by 
PhD students and postdocs. It could be done by 17 and 18 year olds to a level which I feel has a sufficient quality to allow it to be published in an international journal. Part of what makes these projects possible is that high-tech science is getting much more accessible. There were posters showing how students were using reams of genetic data to scan the whole genome for disease associations. Unthinkable 10 years ago in labs, let alone in classrooms. Hilary Leavers, the head of education and learning at Wellcome, is all for practical experience. Something we are concerned about is to make sure that students really do have rich practical experiences throughout their school careers. And this is something which we think is under threat. Is this the way that you think that those opportunities can be created? Is this, is this the model that you'd want to roll out and get into curriculums? I think this is one of many. It is a wonderful model, but it does require a lot of commitment, a lot of energy, and we also have all the schools with a very engaged external partner, all these universities. Um, so I don't think it is one that would work for every school, but I do think that rich practical experiences should be in every school, so it is just one of many. Dave Coltas from the Langton sees his biggest stumbling block to be funding. Clearly it's a very expensive hobby. Um, it's, not, it, it's, it's not massively expensive, but if you're talking about thousands of schools, then it becomes hugely expensive. Uh, what we're proving is that the model can work. We're proving that the, uh, the teaching staff are capable, the university staff are very helpful and very, very keen to get involved. It's very good for them. And yes, if we could roll it out to a wider audience, that would be superb. That's fantastic. And that's what we'd aim to do. I pose the question of funding to Russell Foster, who sits on the council for the BBSRC, the UK's largest public funder for non-medical bioscience research. It's extremely difficult because when there are limited resources, particularly from the state sector, uh, in terms of funding for research, where are your priorities? Do we continue to fund the, the basic and applied research? And something's got to give. On the other hand, what you've got to understand is that we're training up the next generation, and if we don't do it properly, then science will soon hit the buffers. So I think we need to think about this across the funding sector. News time now, and joining me in the studio are news editors David Ray and Davide Kaslavecki. David, you first. Do you have a story about lions? We do, yeah, and uh, I think as most people would understand, there's been a huge decline in the number of lions in, in, in Africa, certainly in the last 50 years or so. In fact, the numbers are down by about 70,000 from 100,000 50 years ago. And the question that sort of ecologists are debating at the moment uh, is whether to fence wild lions into the reserves and places that they live. And it's an interesting question. It seems like it's a pretty obvious answer. Yes, fence them in, keep them away from the local population and give them a chance to, you know, a bit of extra protection, I suppose. But it's not as simple as that. And uh, the first group of ecologists who suggested putting up a fence have opened up a pretty large debate within the conservation circles about whether animals should be fenced in or not. And uh, the original paper said that it helps with the density of lions living in a particular, you know, say, bits. The Serengeti National Park is a famous example in Tanzania. And uh, a lot of this guy's colleagues have said, no, it's not a good idea. The animals should be allowed to, to move about freely. And, of course, putting up fences doesn't just affect lions. It affects absolutely everything living in that particular part or, or you know, reserve, game park, whatever you want. So, yes, a, a lot of debate basically on this subject at the moment and no particular right answer. Why is this an issue now? I mean, these lions have been roaming free for, for decades, for centuries. Why, why now? I think in particularly because of the sort of sharp decline in numbers as a start, and also because um, funding is a big issue at the moment for lion conservation, and obviously building huge fences that can keep out elephants and all sorts of things incredibly expensive to make. That's what's kind of stimulated it, and obviously this paper by um, this guy called Craig Packer, a US scientist conservationist, is the one that sort of stimulated the whole debate as it is at the moment. And what did this paper show exactly? Well, it sort of showed that lion densities 
were safer in when there was a fence. So no matter what size of the park, lions were always had more chance of success and, and sort of flourishing as a, as a lion community if they were fenced in. And uh, it was shot down a little bit by the other side, or well, not a little bit, this debate's been quite uh, quite intense, but uh, who said that it's not fair just to measure the density of lines in any particular park, or because the size is obviously quite important. 600 lines in a huge park is, is nothing, while there's five in a tiny little private park is, is obviously quite a few. So that was their main argument against it. And has there been any resistance to these proposals, say from animal rights activists or anyone like that? It's, it's a good, really good question. I mean, I think it's not as... Obviously, it's contentious as having enclosures in zoos, for example, which are kind of slightly more, um, you know, necessary, I suppose. But there is debate mainly about the Western scientists telling the Africans what to do. Uh, and I think the Africans, obviously, they're the ones who've got to live with lions on a day-to-day basis. They're the ones who are having to fend them off and who ultimately are killing them because they're attacking people in the villages or whatever. And the African demographics or the African population is growing enormously. And therefore, there's an argument to say that it is safer for the animals and the people to, to fence, fence the animals into their you know, habitats instead of letting them roam wild, uh, freely. And of course, that is a more sort of philosophical debate about um, what's best for the animals and what people think is best for the animals, which may not necessarily be the same thing. Mm. Now, lions aren't actually on the endangered species list, but is this fencing method something we could do for certain populations of lions, perhaps ones that are more threatened than others? Well, certainly there's, you're quite like to say they're not on the endangered species list, but a lot of these scientists have identified parts of Africa where they're more at risk than they are in other parts. And uh, I think, therefore, there'd not be a lot of argument between either of these two sides in this debate about fencing off certain parks. And obviously certain parks would not be suitable for fencing off as well. So, I mean, if they're 47,000 square kilometres, like the Selu Park in Tanzania, that's a hell of a lot of fence and a hell of a lot of money that needs to be spent building it. So um, there's an argument that they, they could... Both sides would agree they have a place, definitely. Thanks, David. So moving from an animal on land to one under the sea, Davide. So, yeah, this story was about octopuses and how they move with their eight legs. And it turns out that they have a quite unique system of locomotion. Of course, when you have eight legs, it's you can imagine it's more complicated to coordinate them than uh, walking on two and four legs. Am I right in thinking that scientists thought they had a centralised control room, as it were, that was controlling these eight legs? Well, octopuses have a brain, like most vertebrates, but uh, as many as two-thirds of their neurons are located in the arms, in each of the eight arms. And people knew before they had done experiments showing that even when you sever the nerves that connect the brain to the arms, each of the arms is still able to uh, move and, and make complicated motions by itself. So each of those arms essentially has a mind of its own. Exactly. And the, the new study that we covered this time showed that there's virtually no pattern that you can see be, uh, among the arms when an octopus moves. So it's a bit like the difference between an army marching and you know, a bunch of school kids on a, on a school trip. You can tell... The, the kids, more or less, to get from point A to point B, but, but then each of them will get there in a different way. How then do they coordinate all of those eight legs to get from A to B? This seems to be a great unknown, but uh, there, is, there needs to be, of course, some degree of coordination, but at the same time, each arm seems to be acting independently. So an octopus has eight legs that each has a mind of its own. Where's the head facing when it's moving forward? 
That's one of the interesting things found in this study. It can face pretty much in any direction. In fact, as the octopus moves in a straight line, it can at the same time rotate. It can turn itself to, to, turn, to face any direction it wants. And finally, to end this story, here's a clip of Guy Levy at the Hebrew University. We spoke to him this week about what it was like to study the octopuses. When you come into the room and you see the aquariums, you see the animals, but they see you also, and that they respond. Some of them hide, the smaller ones, but the larger ones, which are not very large, let's say 500 grams, you would expect an animal so small relative to us to be afraid, but no, they're curious. If I'll put my hand inside the water, which I have to do in order to work with them, sometimes they would grab my hand, pull it, they might splash water at me. That was Guy Levy at the Hebrew University. Thanks, Davide, and thanks, David. Remember, you can read both of those stories and more at nature.com news. That's it for this week. Join us next time when we'll be looking at the molecular basis of happiness. And we'll be reporting from the Collider exhibition at London's Science Museum. I'm Thea Cunningham. And I'm Kerry Smith. 